right everybody welcome back to 80s high the podcast that jumps up and down on the bed as it professes its love to the most radical decade in history how do i love thee let me count the ways one one thousand two one thousand we're your hosts i'm ben and i'm chris and welcome back how's it going man what's happening it's great things are so much fun uh this was a great revisit i can't wait to talk about it I don't want to jump the gun, but it was it was a great topic to revisit this movie. So very excited about that, but also excited because our inbox was popping poppin', this last week. Blowing up is so exciting. With some hot off the press updates from some lovely listeners. And we just wanted to give a little shout out because one of our listeners cracked the case yes. of the Duck Hunt solo cartridge yeah and listener says ben yeah it existed so mike mike in niagara falls ontario sent us a picture of his standalone nintendo entertainment system duck gun cartridge uh uh, saying he he had it so you know it's not the combo with the mario brothers it's just duck hunt so thank you for resolving this mind-numbing mystery for us, Mike. You're the best. Also, Mike, you did shout out in your email that you're a teacher, and thank you for all you do. You're the best. Absolutely. Teachers rock and roll. We wouldn't be here today without people like you. So thanks for doing what you do. 100%. A very unappreciated group. Pay teachers all the money. They're all amazing. The money. They're shaping our future, everybody. But wait, Christopher, there's yes. more. Wait, there's more. We also heard from listener Nancy, who said, hey, when you mentioned Tetris on your episode about Duck Hunt, it reminded me of this video, and she shared this YouTube video. We'll go ahead and drop it in the show notes. The complete history of the Soviet Union arranged to the melody of Tetris. Yeah, it was pretty good. I enjoyed the watch. Thanks for the hot tip there, Nancy. And Nancy, I do have to tell you and the rest of our listeners, I watched again, the trailer for the show. It like popped up on YouTube and the show that's coming out on Disney Plus about Tetris. Yeah. And I was like, wait a minute. Is there like a theme song that's blending the Tetris song with Final Countdown? I think it's in there. It's pretty good. Oh my God. It's It's pretty good. It's so in there. And then that led me to find a, I guess a fan-made version of it. I don't know if that's been officially released from what's in the trailer. But a fan-made version of it, that sounded amazing. I found it on YouTube. This guy has a Spotify channel. The fan-made song is called Tetris Trailer Music. Duh. The Final Countdown. So good. Epic version by D. Meletus. Meletus. Uh, I'll put this in the show notes as well. Because why freaking not? It's like dance music. Final Countdown. It's amazing how well it merges with the sound of the original... It's a final countdown. It's way better than that, everybody. That's I didn't just drop a clip. I know you thought I just dropped a sound clip. That's not what that was. It's amazing. So definitely check that out. And I think you're going to be you're going to be grooving. So thank you, Nancy. 
besides getting some great input from our class of 80s high, did anything else 80s-ish inspire you since we last recorded that you experienced? What's going on out there? So it's not 80s, it's 80s adjacent, and it does tie back to a topic we've done on this show before, which was Stephen King's It. Thank goodness we're still hyper self-referential. That will never go away, of course. And so I was on Amazon Prime, actually, Prime Video, to watch... Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And what showed up as a recommendation, but a documentary called Pennywise, The Story of It. And this focused specifically on the behind the scenes making of for the made for TV movie version that came on ABC with, of course, everyone's favorite Tim Curry and that whole wonderful cast. And so it's like two hours long. And so I watched it last night right after watching Who Framed Roger Rabbit because I was like, I I, I just got to check this out. And I do have to say, receipts-wise, I think we did a pretty good job of capturing a lot of the details. I was like, oh, yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. I think we mentioned that. But it was just cool to see the actors talk about the whole experience. And it sounded like both the kid cast and the adult cast were just effing around so much on set, much to the dismay of some of the other actors and to the director and everything. You can just tell they all bonded and got along and were goofing off and having a great time, which I thought was awesome. But also, you know, just getting a lot of good work done. And of course, you know, Tim Curry nailing that role as Pennywise. And so anyway, if you're interested in learning a bit more about that miniseries, again, early 90s, but we talked about the novel and its various incarnations of it that followed, and uh, it's definitely worth a look-see. I dig it. The hot on my radar 80s thing I've been loving over the last week is last week dropped History of the World Part 2 from Mel Brooks. Oh, right. That's right. I saw that. So good. Remember this movie I made? Was it in the 80s, actually? 1981 is part one wow. of History of the World. Part. And back then, it was just one movie, all sketches from history. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to our lovers here. They all know what this thing it's was. like, what, but 42 for those years know, later? We're yeah. Like, and people was this sequel? Where's part two? <laughs> and Mel Brooks finally did it. So it's Mel Brooks. It's, it's largely uh, executive produced by Nick Kroll. But honestly, I started mm. writing down all the awesome cameos, and I realized the list of contemporary comedians who aren't in it is shorter than those who are like everybody has a cameo in this thing it's like drunk history and mel brooks had a baby it's so good it's so funny highly recommend it if that is not the summary synopsis of the movie when you go to (laughs) queue it up on the streamer i don't want to know what they wrote it's you don't even want to know what more do you need there's your ringing endorsement right freaking there man that's all you need that's awesome before we hop in this smart mouth taxi cab and rip off to the episode. Do you have anything else for homeroom? I don't think so. Let us cut to the car chase and go to history class because Ben, we've said it multiple times already, but what are we here to talk about today? Well, to solve one of the greatest cinematography mysteries of all time. Oh yeah. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Oh, it's so good. Let's go to history class. I've gathered here in history class today. I'm so excited to talk about this movie, to talk about the Mm. 1988 film, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? So if you don't know, if you've only heard about this movie in passing, let's Mm. give you a breakdown. So this Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out in 1988, and it's a a fascinating mix. It's fantasy, comedy, mystery, noir, crime, uh, but it's directed by Robert Zemeckis, of course, of Back to the Future fame and other things. Oh, yeah. Written by Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman, uh, and based on a 1981 novel by Gary Wolfe called Who Censored Roger Rabbit, 
question mark. And we're going to come back to that. Hmm. Because you, astute student, might notice there is no question mark in this movie's title on the box cover. And there's a reason. It stars Bob Hoskins as Eddie Valiant. And as and as uh, I really just want to point out, because he's got this great, like, gruff, I don't know, he's got this great, gruff American accent. He was born in Bury St. Edmunds, Suffolk. He's very British. It's always amazing when you watch a show and you just don't even know somebody is not an American actor. And then you hear them like do an interview and you're like, I'm sorry, what now? Blew my mind. Like it's the guy so who plays Saeed from Lost. Oh, that yeah, dude right, has like right, a right, right, right. super British accent. And I was like, wait, what? It's very shocking. Yeah, that blew my mind. I did not know Bob Hoskins was an Englishman. It's awesome. Hoskins leads the cast, but it also stars Christopher Lloyd, Stubby Kay, and Joanna Cassid. So it's this fascinating movie that combines live action and animation. And it's sort of set in this alternate history Hollywood in 1947, where humans and cartoons sort of cohabitate, coexist in the same world mm-hmm. without any oddity. They sort of are, are living together in Hollywood. Yeah. And of course, our star is Eddie Valiant, who's a private investigator who gets wrapped up in this crazy murder mystery after he swore he'd never work for another tune, trying to figure out who in fact did frame the cartoon character Roger Rabbit. Yeah. And there's a reason he doesn't like tunes and doesn't want anything Ooh, to do with them. Ooh, gonna get dark. Oh. But it's noir, you know, gotta get dark real fast. Yeah, it can't be all sunshine and rainbows. I want to start in a really weird spot here in history, but it's something that I'd always wondered as a kid watching this movie, and I was just curious. What's one of the magnificent parts of Who Framed Roger Rabbit is it starts off with a cartoon, a cartoon short with yeah. uh, Baby Herman and Roger Rabbit. And when I was a kid, and this actually comes up in the testing audiences of the film here in a little later in history, but I was like, what is this? I was going to watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Where's the live action? Really threw me off. And another part later in the movie where Roger and Eddie and Dolores all go to a theater to hide and kind of talk, there's a news release being played before the movie. And I was like, oh, I'm mm-hmm. so curious about these cartoon shorts and newsreels. So both of these really had their highlight, this idea that either a cartoon or news would play before the movie at a movie theater in the 30s and 40s. This was the golden age of this time. Yeah. The newsreel thing actually started in 1895, but then really took off as a weekly thing in movie theaters in 1911. They were trying to reach the masses, honestly, people who couldn't read and needed to know the news. Well, I was also thinking, like, did everyone have a radio or a television, you know, depending on the era or decade, like that would be a way where you could inform a lot of people as well. So absolutely, absolutely. Especially, you know, it's it's 1930s. So you've got some some war propaganda, some transatlantic accents before your movies. So it's perfect time. Motion picture companies sponsored animation studios and in return received cartoon stars and popular short films. But the cost of animation started to get too expensive. So really, this died off same time the newsreel thing did. Right after kind of World War II, uh, there was a Silver Age in the 50s, but then it died by the 70s in the Bronze Age of of pre-movie cartoons. But I was just Mm. so curious. That was like a thing. And I love that this – I love that Who Framed Roger Rabbit highlights this. Yeah, absolutely. You already mentioned without knowing it, this movie was executive produced by Steven Spielberg. He's back again. Stevie's back, man. And like I said, directed by Robert Zemeckis. And of course, what I love about this is that you see Christopher Lloyd in this movie and you're like, Christopher, what are you doing? You're like a super scary bad guy and you're so crazy. Well, they had just done Back to the Future in 1985. And three years later is this movie. Zemeckis and Lloyd obviously get along. So that's how Christopher Lloyd is cast as Judge Doom in this. Although I know you always love talking about this. Sometimes we do movies. Did you see who else they considered for this movie? Some of the other actors? 
I have a whole list of alternate casting that we can talk about whenever you're ready. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to get much into the cast. And since I just started talking about Lloyd, I mean, can you talk right now about Judge Doom? There's a great story about Judge Doom. Well, if we can go back, this is one of the reasons I wanted to mention the Pennywise thing because oh, Tim perfect. Curry, yes. right? Good. Yeah. Tim Curry auditioned for the role. They rejected him because they found him too terrifying, it's too scary to be judged. Too scary Doom. to be judged. Doom, which I, I think is it. very fitting that he then goes on not too many years later, a couple years later, to play Pennywise the clown. So he found yeah. his calling. Also, John Cleese. I love it. I love but it. He was I love deemed it, I love not it. scary enough. We definitely have a Goldilocks thing here. Sure. Too 100%. scary, not scary enough. Christopher Lloyd must have been just the right amount of scary. And of course, what does he never do when he's on screen? Blink. He never blinks. I love that which little is hidden gem. Such an intentional thing. There are tons of other people who auditioned. We don't have to go down the rabbit hole, but two more. Yeah. Sir Christopher Lee, Saruman himself. Yeah. And then Sting. Oh, okay, right. Was this like Labyrinth had David Bowie and they're like, well, <laughs> if they have a British a- a singer turned actor in their movie, we can have Sting in ours. I bet we could get a codpiece on Sting. Get the codpiece. I bet we could talk on him. <laughs> Do you, I remember a friend sent me this, God, like decades ago, that there was a whole website built around a joke religion worshiping Bowie's codpiece in Labyrinth. It was called Areology. Oh, dear. It was like the charming days of the internet where you could like build your own website very easily about like whatever Geocities. Yes, yes. Geocities or like Angel Fire or something. <laughs> Angel like, Fire, yeah. Uh, it was one of those sites. It was, it was li- concerning. Was Live Journal was a thing maybe around yes. that time roughly? It's yeah. kind of definitely one of those things where like a celebrity, if they Google themselves and found it, would be really concerned about the internet. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's, it, was, it was a little that's upsetting. A lot. It was a little upsetting. I was really excited about the Eddie Valiant story. Do you have that one on your list there? About alternate cast? Yes. Yes. So apparently the top choice, for from Spielberg at least, was Mr. Harrison Ford. Yeah, right? But he had a big price tag attached. You know, coming off that trilogy, he's like, you got to pay for the Ford. Can you see Ford in this role? No. Yeah, I think it's a little hard. After Jones, I can't see him doing this. I'm going to tell you, everyone on this list, I don't think... This is a good movie. And, you know, we talked about this with Tom Hanks and Big. There were a lot of great names that came up for that movie. We talk about this with a lot of the movies, quite frankly. But that one especially, like, you can't imagine that movie without Tom Hanks. Mr. Hoskins, I cannot imagine this movie with anyone in the Eddie Valiant seat. So not Harrison Ford. Apparently second choice was Chevy Chase. Oh, boy. I don't see it. No. Bill Murray was considered. Again, love Bill. Don't see it. I like the Murray story, though. They really, really, really wanted Bill Murray, and they kept trying to call him, but he, his, he and his agent wouldn't answer their phones. So they're like, well, yeah. I guess Murray's not available. So they moved on. And that came up in an interview on TV, and I guess Murray was watching TV, and he saw it, and he's like, are you kidding me? I would have loved this role. Like, yeah. he was so kicking himself down the street. Yeah, he was too much his own self of being this mercurial person that they overlooked him. And yeah, Uh, Eddie Murphy also apparently turned it down because he didn't quite understand the concept, but later kind of kicked himself like Murray, like, oh, man, passed up on this. Murphy, Murphy, it's Beverly Hills Cop, but with cartoons. Like, it's not that hard, buddy. Come on. Again, what you touched on with Bob Hoskins was that gruff 
thing that you need in a noir detective. Yeah. None of these people say noir detective to me. Harrison Ford can be a noir adventurer uh, sure. running off in, you know, Temple of Dooming, but I just don't see him as Eddie Valiant. A lot of other names here, again, we won't go through a lot of them, but some of these have come up before. Robin Williams, totally don't see it. Sylvester Stallone? For Valiant? Wallace Shawn. No. Inconceivable! <laughs> like, I just don't get it. That would have been so weird. A strange array of characters. They found the perfect person. No. Can't imagine anybody else. Yeah, Hoskins crushes it. I didn't know about all those others. I just knew about Murray. That's great. What a Wild. Weird, what a weird field. I do have one more. We can stop with the alternate cast choices, but there's just one more that will tie back to a fairly recent episode as well. Oh, Actually, oh. it's going to tie back to, I think, last episode and then a few back. If you tie three, you get bingo. You win. There's a prize. Ooh, can I get three? Well, here's what. Apparently, early on, they were considering another voice actor for Roger Rabbit. It goes to Charles Fleischer, Charlie Fleischer, which we're definitely going to talk about him. But there was an alternate person considered for the voice. And this person has come up as a voice in another movie we talked about very recently. Oh. Think of a voice, a character that was voiced by somebody that wasn't a, a human flesh and bone character. It's a topic you picked. Uh, what's that guy's name? What's the talk show host who's really scared of getting dirty? Uh, there's a 90s Mark cartoon. Summers? No, no, uh, no, 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 similar. Bobby's World. He's the voice of Gizmo in Gremlins. Is that who you're talking about? Oh, oh, uh, are you talking about Harvey, um... Oh, Mandel. Yeah, something Mandel. How Howie Mandel. Howie Mandel! No! Okay, who is you it? You ready? Yeah. Paul Rubens. No! Paul Rubens, you voice know... of... The, what's the iRobot from uh, Flight of the Navigator? Max? Max, right. Voice of Max. I brought Pee-wee's Big Adventure up in our Bicycles episode. Apparently, Paul Rubens was considered to voice Roger Rabbit. You know, again, once the movie's out, once once the cat's out of the bag, the rabbit's out of the den, it's hard to see anyone else in these roles. Yes. I could maybe hear Paul Rubens in, in a Roger Rabbit. Maybe. It's a very, very different character, So different. Though. So different. You know he'd slip the, the trademark Rubens laugh in there, the Pee Wee Herman sure. laugh somehow. Sure. <laughs> of course. And that just doesn't quite fit. Anyway, that was just some of the possible casting versus who we got. I'm always very fascinated by these, so I'm glad you brought it up so we could uh, no, it's great. explore it a little bit. It's great. And I think feel very comfortable with who we landed on. Yeah, it's a solid cast. So we're we're at the start of CG. There, we know 80s has some G, CG. Not all is executed wonderfully. But Zemeckis considered it, but he really wanted the animation. He really wanted this movie to really pay homage to that golden age of animation in like the 30s and 40s. So he kept with it. Computer-generated graphics at that time were not really advanced enough. I no. mean, we really didn't see it until Jurassic Park. 1993. We might still, in, in season four, senior year, do Money for Nothing. We could really talk about CG with that music video. That's very true. <laughs> so Roger Rabbit is based on a bunch of very famous cartoon characters. So he gets, mm -hmm. when you look at Roger Rabbit, he's got Mickey's yellow gloves from the 1940s. He's got Droopy Dog's orange hair, Goofy's overalls, Bugs Bunny's cheeks, Porky Pig's bow ties, and they made him generally red, white, and blue to make him even more liked by the American audience, which I thought was kind of fun. 
And I also just like, there's a whole section about the ears, but just well, next time you watch the movie, watch Roger's ears. They're just, apparently they're based on ballet dance and they're just very expressive and move and, and fluid. I love it. It's one of those subtle things where it's like the ears are kind of telling about his mood or his thoughts or reactions or feelings. And it's never expressly called out, but it's just one of those, we're going to talk about a lot of these small touches that all come together to make this movie so magical and lovely. And that's just one example. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the voice actor, Charlie Fleischer, who does Roger Rabbit. He does Benny the Cab and two of the weasels. Mm -hmm. Uh, But anything else you want to tell us about Charlie? Good old Charles. Well, what was really interesting is he came on set and demanded to be in a bunny costume. That's right. To basically create what he called transprogressional acting, which I thought was a fascinating term. I don't know if Charlie came up with this term himself, but the idea was he and Bob would practice together. He'd be in the scene. And then when it's actual roll camera, Bob is interacting with nothing. So he would either have like Charlie to work off of or these like puppet versions so that he can get like eyeline and everything down. And then when it's roll camera, he's got nothing to work off of. So he has to focus on things that aren't there, talk to things that aren't there. And Charlie would be off camera voicing all of Roger's lines. So he's there, he's in the costume. And apparently everyone thought he was like a little wacky, but this so reminded me of Andy Serkis playing Gollum. Oh, interesting. And in the first Lord of the Rings movie, he insisted on being there. He was like moving around. Like that's ultimately what went to the motion capture and why he was in it. Oh, good catch. He had to like fight for that. And at first everyone thought he was nuts. And then after the first movie went so well, you know, Jackson's like, you're doing this. And then he became very respected. But it's like, if you watch the making of... He really had to earn and fight for that respect that he eventually got because no one understood what he was doing. He was like, is this guy just off his rocker? Like, what is he? What's he about? And I was just like, oh, I'm getting strong circus vibes from learning about Fleischer doing this well before him, basically becoming that character. And I just thought that was super cool. And uh, yeah, it was a great little nugget. I love that so much. And Again, I don't think we get the same movie if he did not have that intuition and the the fortitude just to be like, I think I need to do this and you have to trust me. And what I love too are the rumors around the back lot when he would like Charlie go grab lunch or something <laughs> and people not part of the movie would see him and be like, oh no, did you see the costume for the rabbit for that Who Framed movie? That's going to- What are they That's going to be over awful. there. That looks so yeah. stupid. These idiots, what a terrible movie. Like they actually thought that was going to I be the Roger awesome. character. Which, let me be honest, he looks ridiculous. He looks insane. So that thought from other people at the commissary, I think is very well earned because if you didn't know any better, you'd be like, that's the dumbest costume I've ever seen. It's so good. They, must, they have no budget over there. <laughs> so- This is not the first time we've got humans sharing the screen with animation. There's a lot of history of that long before Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The oldest I could find was The Enchanted Drawing, a short from 1900, a black and white where a guy is kind of painting a face on a mural and the face sort of interacts with him and they have back and forth. Wow. But 1940s Fantasia, Disney, has some of it. Yep. 1944, The Three Caballeros, those parrots and Donald Duck, that like classic one. Um, I think the one that always is in my head that I thought of when we started off on this is 1945 Gene Kelly in Anchors Away, where he like dances with Jerry Mouse. 
That's always hmm. the one I think of when I think of like um, okay. live action and cartoons. You've got 1964's Mary Poppins. There's a whole penguins dance in that. See, that's the one I think of. Classic. When they jump into Super the classic. chalk drawing and yeah, yeah. 1971's Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Uh, and then this is kind of a cheat, but I, I'm going to count it. 1975's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Just because that movie is awesome. But also there's some kind of animation in live action, a little bit. Blended. And we already mentioned John Cleese. I would also throw in there Pete's Dragon. That's oh, a movie duh, that I never sure. saw, but I remember yeah. that mix with the cartoon dragon and the, you know, live action kid and all that stuff. But I think this movie looks fantastic. And so I wanted oh to get God. into how did they do it? How did they pull this off? Magic. Magic, folks. So we mentioned all those shorts, and those shorts occurred, but this is the first full-length movie that was going to pull it off. It's all animated by hand. This movie's 104 minutes long with 55 different animated characters, and it cost $58 million to make. That's Mm -hmm. that's over a quarter million dollars per minute for the animation. It's the most expensive movie in the 80s of its time. It's crazy expensive, which is we'll get through this. I loved one YouTube sort of documentary that was kind of like, we'll never see a movie like Roger Rabbit ever again. Mm. And I, it largely comes down to cost and vision. And I, I think they're right. Yeah, I think it came at like the perfect time. It, yeah. it definitely feels like one of those where it's like everything just fell into place beautifully. Yeah, I don't know that it would ever be made again. Well, as we'll talk about later, a sequel seems very unlikely despite some interest in it. Yeah. More or less for that very reason. There's others too, but we'll it's talk crazy. about that. It's crazy. So there's a lot of wizards who need to be credited with the magic that goes on here in this movie. But let's start with animation director Richard Williams. And yeah. this this lunatic sets out with this movie that he's going to break three of the rules that are set out for animation, trying to do animation and live action. First, yep. he wants to move the camera around as much as possible. Which, like, previously, that's really hard for an animator. You keep the camera still, and then the animator can do it much easier on the one scene you've shot. But he wants to move it around so it feels like a normal movie. Second, it wants to use a lot of lighting and shadows to an extreme. So really trying to make this world have some depth rather than flat animation. Yep. And third, which is honestly so subtle, but, like, on a rewatch, probably one of the parts I appreciate the most about this movie is make sure the cartoons interact with real-world objects and people all the time. Yep. We could do a whole podcast episode just about the engineering, creativity, and genius that makes stuff move when nothing is there. I love that part of this movie. I think the practical effects department probably gets overlooked the most in this because obviously the animation uh, is going to get its props as it should because it's fantastic. And they did the painstaking process in the hundreds of animators. I think it's somewhere of like 300 animators employed full time on this movie. And the different layers they had to do, to your point, to get the depth of not just having a flat 2D character, but what somebody called 2.5 dimensional. They didn't want it like full 3D look, so they had to find this middle ground. But obviously that gets a lot of attention. But so many of the practical effects that had to accompany that, even something as simple as like Baby Herman's cigar as he's talking and gesturing and gesticulating, that cigar had to be moved. It's a robot. It's a whole freaking robot robot they draw over. That's like somebody's wearing like a mechanical arm that also moves the robot arm. It's like early, I don't know what you would call that technology. You know, honestly, it reminds me when we talked about Fraggle Rock. It's like the puppet arm from the Doozers, where like someone yeah. is moving and it radio controls to a robot arm. 
That's true. But this is like whatever uh, actions you're doing, the robot arm is mimicking it. But anyway, yeah. there's just so much of that. But it's something even as simple as like when Roger's head falls on the desk, everything on the desk has to shake right. to show that he hit the desk. Well, you have to find a way to make that happen. Or like there's the octopus bartender at the club. That was like a whole thing. Because he's got like eight tentacles, of course, doing different things, mixing drinks and, you know, pouring this and all that. And all of those had to be separately manipulated with wires or apparatus or whatever. So freaking cool. Yeah, I mean, you brought it up. So I'll jump ahead a little bit, but then I want to come back to the animation. But but all the animators said the Ink and Paint Club, what you just talked about, was the most complicated series of shots in the whole thing. The sure. whole set is built eight feet off the ground because the puppeteers had to have the little serving trays that the penguin waiters and waitresses are carrying around on poles running around beneath the floors. And it's almost like it's like the ALF set in hell. Like there was like right. a few holes on the ALF set. This thing is a root, like a whole ballroom large of holes. And then the pianos, the dueling pianos there between Donald and Daffy Duck are like, yes, they're programmed like old pianos could be, but then like there's all these mechanics to make them slam and shake and for doors to open. Like it's amazing mechanics. And the stool to rock back and forth as they're like playing feverishly and moving around. Yep. Mm -hmm. Really the unsung heroes of this movie. So I want to back up real fast. So for every second of film, so much happens to one single shot every second of the film. So anytime there's going to be a live action mixed with cartoons, that shot is one photograph. And then an animator with tracing paper has to draw the character on top of that photo. And they have to draw that character four times. So they have yep. to draw the character with the main character, the character's shadows, the character's highlights, and then the main character again as a mat with a backlight. Mm-hmm. And then they send it all to Industrial Light and Magic, who was hired to try and composite all this together. And then this all, of course, had to be hand-colored. Like, mm-hmm. so much work. They even, one of the magical things I loved about Richard Williams leading this charge is he had to invent an animation style that could blur characters so that you could have soft focus and out of focus. So that as the camera moves all over the place, right. the, the cartoons would be, like, believable their depth, which is amazing. There's a great shot where like Jessica's in the alleyway and she turns around to look up at the window on the second floor. And that's a good example of where it's focused on her. But as she's looking up, you need to focus on what she's looking at, which means she has to be out of focus because that's what would happen if she was an actual person standing there. So that's like a great example of that shot. And they had to figure out a way to make it happen. And it was just like painstaking process of trying different things to make it look effectively like not gauzy, but sort of filmy or like it's almost I think the guy mentioned it's almost like holding up a sandwich bag in front of the lens and you're looking through the sandwich bag to make it look a little more translucent or whatever the right word is. Yeah. 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 Super cool. So that was the animation. The next part is like how to make this believable around the cartoons. And one of the things they talked about was sight lines, maintaining your sight lines as the, as the living actors made eye contact with cartoons that weren't there. So every scene had to be shot twice. Uh, they would shoot it with a cartoon dummy. So there was like a puppet of Roger that was the right size that would shoot with Bob Hoskins and Bob is, you know, doing whatever. Or the weasels. Or the weasels. And then you'd pull the puppets out and they'd shoot it again. And Zemeckis would sit there with two cameras right next to each other, the puppet version and the empty version, watching them play at the same time to make sure that like the sight lines were lining up. And apparently Hoskins crushed this. That's why I think Hoskins is really the glue of this movie. 
we will continue to talk about how amazing pretty much everyone making this movie is. It's really magic at every single freaking level. I just don't think you have it without the glue that is Hoskins' performance. He has to sell it all. You can have all the amazing stuff, but if you don't have that human anchor that bridges the animated and the real world and just makes it all believable, I think it all just doesn't work. Uh, 100%. 100%. It's not even sightline, too. It's like focus because he's like, you know, you can be looking at a dummy, but as soon as you pull it away, your eyes want to focus on whatever's behind it. It's that whole thing of like, You know, when someone says, like, somebody looks like they're staring through you, like you don't exist. He had to do the opposite, which is I have to focus on a thing that doesn't exist and it's right there. Yeah. And the dude just freaking nails it. Never once are you like, eh, okay. It's almost like when you're watching Saturday Night Live and you're like, oh, my God, would you stop reading the cue cards already? (laughs) Like, there's just like, it's almost one of those things where sometimes you can tell someone's reading a cue card and it just kind of pulls you out of the scene and just... The fourth wall is broken, so to speak. I mean, in the documentary that I watched, they threw Julie Andrews under the bus because apparently in Mary Poppins, like she cannot keep eye contact on where the penguins are that are dancing and performing. Uh, And it really makes it noticeable and like makes it hard to believe. You're like, is this really that much of a big deal? Hoskins shows it is. So you're saying she's really not practically perfect in every way? Oh, this guy. Mm. She's practically, not fully, just practically. Yeah, it's true. Practically. Uh, the last part I want to talk here about uh, how they did it, we talked about the robotics, and I won't go crazy down the rabbit hole, but again, I just want to say, like, you try and make something at home. I don't care what you're doing. I don't know what your background is. Go grab some Calm tools. down. Are you yelling at our listeners right now? I am right yelling now? at everybody you're right so now. You're so hot. I'm so Why are you hot? getting all hot? <laughs> I'm just saying. Pipe down, mister. Go try and make anything that moves on your own with whatever you can find around your house, and then watch this movie and have some respect. For the special effects department. This has got to be Adam Savage's favorite movie of all time. Like, the practical effects <laughs> in this are incredible. So there's basically three ways they do this. Some are robots. And there's literally, like, a robot that they are using electronically to do the thing on camera. And then the animators later on the film draw over the robot so you can't see the robot and animate a cartoon on top of it. Like Baby Herman, like you said, smoking a cigar. A lot of the others are wires. There's just a lot of wires floating stuff around the set. So you talked about the octopus at the Ink and Paint mm-hmm. Club, which is like insane. You see like the weasels are carrying guns and weapons, and those are just on fishing line, like bobbing up and down across the set. Right. And then the last one, and, and honestly, some of the most impressive, besides the robots, are these like very scene-specific contraptions that have been made to make a very specific thing happen. And what's even more amazing is, like, when I watch these scenes and think about how much time it went to make that mechanic and hide it in the set so you don't see it, and these scenes are, like, half a second long. The shot is half a second. That's all you get. So, like, you know, when Hoskins is hiding Roger Rabbit in his kitchen sink washing dishes and Roger spits water out of the sink... You had to create a whole contraption and hide it in the sink to squirt water. Right. Or like Yosemite Sam comes over the over the wall from Toontown. My biscuits are burning. My biscuits, My are, biscuits burning. are burning. And he yep. sticks his butt in a puddle and the puddle sprays steam to cool his butt down. Like someone built right. a little steam squirt machine in the dirt for half a second of a shot. It's amazing the time that went into this. I just think of the one where he's in the bar, Dolores's bar, and he's singing that song and he's like crashing down the bar yeah. and he's smashing the plates on his head. Like that's another one where it's like all of that had to be working in the proper order. And the fact that you just have all these different people with this just painstaking timing to get it just right. Ugh, beautiful. 
which, since you mentioned, I do want to throw out the song in the bar is Merry Go Round Broke Down, which is the Looney Tunes theme song. With Porky Pig. That's all, folks. The song that plays beforehand, this is a this is with the lyrics. There it is. And one other thing I do want to mention about the practical effects. Um, apparently, Hoskins did some mime school learning. Oh, you can, uh, oh, I don't yeah. know. I don't know that he got shipped off for four years and you know got a degree, but but he did take some classes in miming because there's also a lot of those scenes where like in the office or a few others where he's like basically fighting with a tune. He's struggling with Roger. He's fighting the weasels, and he had to move around like there was weight. In his hands. Yeah, right. I've griped and moaned on this show before about empty coffee cups in movies driving me crazy because you know they're empty. Well, he had to do this, but on a scale of picking up a physical tune, strangling them, wrestling them, throwing them into the side of a car, into a pile of boxes. And again, he sells it perfectly. He does. He makes you think there's actual weight, even though he's grabbing airs. That dude... If he didn't win 12 awards, man was robbed. Yeah, 100%. Which he got close, I think so. He won a lot for it. So this took, anyway, the, the, the animation part of this took two years to complete. Sometimes the animator's working 20 hours a day. Impressive, but not cool. Come on, guys. You know, get some sleep. Get some rest. There's families. There's more to life. Listen, this is an unfortunate reality that we all have to be aware of. Video games, huge industry. I mean, there are some No Crunch Studios, which is great, but there are others that will treat you like a cog. And unfortunately, Hollywood, the pictures, the big time, the silver screen, certainly big contributors to that uh, kind of culture. And yeah. on one hand, you do have people who are so passionate about it, but it's I don't know that they're duly compensated for all the no. work they put in. In the documentary, the uh, animation director, Richard Williams, who actually is like a sweetheart in the documentary. He seems like a very oh, yeah. kind, Such a cool guy. creative, yeah. nice guy. But he joked that like during this two-year sprint, he would just walk down the hallway of his animators going, draw faster. Which <laughs> I thought was pretty funny. I won't go into it too deep. Alan Silvestri does the music, and it's really actually like an interesting blend because you're blending like traditional film noir, sort of dark edgy, uh, grungy detective music with like cartoon music, like Looney Tunes and Disney. And like he Again, threads you got that, that kind of like smoky jazz, right? The There's a lot of smoke. Yeah. Da, 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 you know, that kind of thing. That's how but. he pulls it off. That's kind of what he does. But, but he does blur good. the line very well. And he had a great, I don't know if we ended up watching the same one, but he had this did. great thing, which is where he's like, the greatest compliment is that this score is appropriate. It doesn't call attention uh, to itself. Yeah. It does its job yeah, and good. provides support where it's needed. And I thought that was such a great thing. And I think that's so much of this movie. When it works really well, it's not calling attention to itself. It just happens. And I think you can say that about so many aspects of this movie. Again, like... I didn't know all this stuff about the animation, but when you sit there and talk about it, you're like, oh, yeah, it's not just flat two-dimensional. The characters do have a little bit of depth to them. And you can appreciate it once you know it, but it works so well, you don't even recognize it. That's so much of doing a good job in a lot of this stuff is it's unrecognizable. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't take you out of the experience. Yeah. Which on one hand is very impressive, but on the other hand is like there's so much mastery here that you might be missing unless you you know what to look for. But anyway, I thought it was great. And he just made one other note that I thought was cool, which is he said that when Jessica Rabbit was on screen, her scenes were not scored. Mm. the jazz musicians were told to improvise. So they would just watch this scene and play kind of what they were feeling in the moment. 
which is very jazz, right? Let's yeah. improvise. Just Let's improv. see what's going on. Let's and, and so, like, her music ends up being very personal in a way to those scenes That's because cool. that was I didn't see a that. jazz interpretation of what was going on in that scene, which I thought was That's super really cool. cool. I didn't see that. That's awesome. So while they're finishing up the post-production on this, they start to do test screenings. And the first test screenings go terribly. Amazing, everybody. They <laughs> are through the roof. People are jumping out of windows to go see it, this right, Ben? Straight up right? lie. No. If you thought the rumors around seeing Charlie in the Roger Rabbit suit around the back lot was bad. Oh, boy. Everyone had the same confusion I had when I first saw the movie as a kid, where it opens with an animated, like, Looney Tunes-style cartoon with Roger Rabbit and Baby Herman. And people were like, what is this garbage? I thought this was supposed to be some, like, groundbreaking animation live action. People started walking out in the first screen. It's literally two minutes long. And they say people these days have no attention span. It is literally two minutes at the beginning. Calm down. Movies to sell, rabbits to buy. I got places to be. I got to go. Got to go. But it's good because, like, you know, as the word gets out, like, hey, everyone, hang on a little longer after the animated part. And they finish more of the movie. The, the reviews get so much better and better that by the movies being done, the New York Times comes out and says it will be the film of the summer. No doubts. Yeah, what I liked is that Zemeckis was not really dissuaded by some of the negative early screenings yeah. that where people were just not getting it and kind of turned off by the movie. He did not let that stop him. And what I'll say about Zemeckis, which is so great, and I think Spielberg 100% as well, is they just have that intuition and they're not going to let a minor setback stop them. And I so appreciate that about him because, you know, Zemeckis had come off of Back to the Future, which could yeah. have been a terrible movie. It could right. have bombed. It could have been, you know, just a something to watch and forget, but it paid off. And, you know, Spielberg, similarly, we talked about him earlier this season, had a string of successes and he just had that intuition of like, no, we got something here and we did it the right way. Exactly. So this $58 million movie opens in 1988, and it gets $351 million at the box office. Yep. Does all right. Gets nominated for seven Academy Awards, wins four of them, Best Film Editing, Sound Effects Editing, Visual Effects, and Special Achievement Award, which I wonder if Special Achievement, does that go along with like what Sledgehammer won, like that category that was just made for fun music videos? It sounds familiar. <laughs> Special Achievement Award. Like with Herbie Hancock, Rocket won it, and then Sledgehammer won it, and then that was. Like Wait, is this it. like an honorable mention? Yeah. Or like the the miscongeniality of movies, where it's like, hey, you get a special <laughs> the achievement award. Miscongeniality of movies. Um, it is on Business Insider's best comedy movies of all time, according to critics. And you know, in a rarity from the kind of movies we review on '80s High, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got an aggregate score of ninety-seven percent. Positive on the tomato meter, which is really, really good. Did you see about Siskel and Ebert, their review of it? You know, I I read it. I I did not really capture what they said, only that they both really seemed to love it and apparently kind of kept going on about the movie. Yeah. And I think Ebert liked it a little more than Siskel, but like later on, I think Siskel rated it higher as like one of his favorite movies, whether it was like from the decade or whatever. But they both definitely had a lot of love, which, you know, those guys back then. Didn't always agree. Sometimes one loved, one hated, whatever. But yeah, they both apparently adored this movie. No, totally. And Siskel, always the oddball, really actually loved the opening animated sequence. Like the opening four-minute short. He's like, this is great! But they both still loved it a lot, which I thought was awesome. 
I did not think that's what would be polarizing about this movie, that people were like, wow, what's this animated movie right? for? I was right? expecting people. That's all I have for history class. Do you have any other things from the the logs, the entries, the journal entries? The only thing I'll say here, and we might get more into it in chemistry class, is I am just in awe of all of these creative powerhouses that ended up coming together for this movie, I think in a way that will never happen again. So you have Zemeckis, again, coming off of Romancing the Stone and also Back to the Future. Yeah. You have Spielberg coming off all of his hits leading up to this point, which are almost too numerous to count. You have Disney and Amblin working together. You have Industrial Light and Magic. And they were able to get Warner Brothers to actually have their licensed characters show up with Disney characters which had never happened before, and spoilers, has never happened since. (laughs) And that to me is amazing. And I want to save some of my comments to that in chemistry class, but that was such a huge achievement. And again, plus all the actors and all the other great talent behind the scenes, like there was just a nexus of so much of what made the 80s movie industry magical. All in one movie. Come on now. Yeah. An embarrassment of riches, as they say. An embarrassment of riches. It's true. It's true. It's what made this an absolute stellar knockout. Mm. It does mean that it's probably time for us to go on to chemistry class, because only in chemistry class can we mix the correct ingredients to learn what actually is in dip. Ready to find <laughs> out? <laughs> dip! <laughs> I've been dead. Then he drives through it. So at the top of this, Chris, do you recall, like, what is your history with this movie? Do you remember seeing it? How long ago it was? Theater? Home video? What happened? I definitely saw this in the theater. I wish I could say I had a very specific memory of seeing it in the theater and laughing my head off. Uh, I don't, but I know I watched it many, many times. I know I loved it immediately. A few things that I definitely remember cracking up at. You mentioned the Yosemite Sam where he comes flying over the wall. My biscuits are burning. My biscuits are burning. I thought that was so freaking funny. Loved that. As I mentioned in history class, the fact that you had Daffy and Donald dueling pianos together was mind-blowing. You'd watch Disney cartoons. You'd watch Warner Brothers cartoons. You'd see, you know, Looney Tunes and all that kind of stuff, Saturday morning especially. Never did you see these mix. It's like DC and Marvel coming together. And you're like, I'm sorry, what now? Superman <laughs> is sharing the screen with Wolverine. It's not I okay. can't comprehend. It's very confusing. Very weird. It doesn't happen. And the fact that it did, and you merge it with this fictional world. You oh, know, you have yeah. Baby Herman, yeah. you have Roger Rabbit, Jessica Rabbit. Like, that was really cool. You know, the fact yeah. that you had the scene where Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny are parachuting together. That blew my mind. As a kid, I really loved Jessica Rabbit's song. I definitely remember when I had my little kid voice, I would sing that song. I can picture little Chris singing that song. It's a great song. Yeah. And then you do the high point, the... It's very sultry. It's very like, it's sexy. It's sultry. It's cool. And I was, I don't know, as a child, I was drawn into that for some reason. But the thing that always stuck out to me the most, Christopher Lloyd as freaking Doom. Terrifying. Brilliant, of course. And I mentioned this, I think, when you 
teased the topic last episode when he goes full toed and he said, and I talked just like this and his eyes go red (laughs) and he just looks crazy and his voice is that high pitched screech nightmare fuel, number one. And then number two, you put two and two together that this is the tune that freaking killed Teddy Valiant, who killed Eddie's brother. The reason he hates tunes this is the same man who's been the villain all along. Which, I mean, come on, his last name was Doom. Like, we we, we, we kind of saw that coming. Yeah, he wasn't peace. It was Doom. Right. I mean, the guy was a monster. He was melting tunes with the dip, right? Like, <sighs> it wasn't fun dip. That's was for not. sure, kids. It was not, not. fun was dip. Not. So those are some of the things I remember as a kid watching and re-watching that I love so much. Now, little Benjamin, granted, this was probably boring for you because you were up late watching... Unsolved Mysteries. America's Most Wanted, Unsolved Mysteries, Rescue 911. So you're like, (gasps) yada, yada, okay, okay, whatever. But what did you think of it as a kid? Or did you see it as a kid? When did you see it? I did. I am going to go with a lot of our Instagram pollsters that I probably saw this a little too young, but I saw it on home video, VHS. And there's a lot here. I mean, on my rewatch here, I've got so many notes that we won't be able to get to in this episode of just like lines and scenes that I love so much and brought me back. But I think there's two things you touched on that really like encapsulate what happened when little Benjamin watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And it's it's this transition from naivety of childhood cartoons to adult themes, right? Because mm. that's the whole point of the movie is it's this blending of the cartoon world and the real grown-up world. Right. And the movie hits you with that right out of the gate where you watch this short, Something Cooking, with Baby Herman and Roger Rabbit, and all's going according to plan. And then suddenly the director yells, Cut! And the camera pans yeah. out, and you realize you're on a set. And Baby yep. Herman is this like disgusting, foul mouthed, awful human being. Roger's like yeah. a pathetic people pleaser. Like he's the one who screwed up the scene. And people are swearing at each other. And like right there from the first four minutes of the movie, it tells you you don't know what's coming next. You're not going to be able to know what's going to happen in this movie. Because as yeah. a kid at that time, God, a lot of people listening to this group with like, I don't know, South Park and even The Simpsons, like cartoons that could be edgier and dark and more adult. But this, you know, the golden age of animation had none of that. It was all very innocent. Uh, not exactly. I will say one influence that we didn't talk about was a golden age animator, cartoonist, director, voice actor, Tex Avery. Now, Tex Avery is kind of mentioned a little bit. He did a lot of work with Warner Brothers, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. He was like really instrumental in some of our really well-known characters, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Elmer Fudd, Droopy, and many others, just to name a few. And part of his style was this, because again, remember, Disney is Disney, right? Everything is kind of pure and innocent. It has that kind of Disney stamp on it. But with Avery stuff and Warner Brothers, you had sarcastic, ironic, absurd, irrelevant, and sometimes sexual Bugs Bunny in a dress with big lips. Va-va-va-voom. Yeah, sure. There's a little bit there. you You had some of that stuff in it. And so... There was more of that kind of surrealist humor and some of the like the gaggy kind of aspects of it, breaking the fourth wall that you didn't get in Disney. This definitely takes it, I think, to the next level. Yeah. But it was there well in the DNA before you get to something like this. But I think you're absolutely right. It's that transition where, oh, these aren't drawings that I'm watching. These are actual actors and like any real actor – 
the character and the person portraying the character are not the same. Yeah. Baby Herman isn't, ah, gaga, you know, cookie. Right. Hey, right. move it, Toots, I'm coming through. You know, he's like, <laughs> right. he's just, right. what do you say? If he has the 50-year-old lust with the three-year-old dinky. A three-year-old dinky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Smoking his stogie cigar. <laughs> so good. The, the other scene you mentioned that, like, really takes back of, like, what this movie, like, what is happening is when, like, Jessica Rabbit takes the stage. I yes. think that was probably a confusing moment for a lot of kids. When Jessica Rabbit yes. is revealed and she starts to sway around stage and sing. Again, because Roger Rabbit is a freaking rabbit. You yeah. mentioned all of the hallmarks of classic cartoon characters. Shmush him together. That's Roger. Clearly, he has a rabbit wife and she's going to perform. But no, she's like the va-va-voom femme fatale that you see in a lot of yeah. these old movies and based off of several characters and actors that were out there at that time. Yeah, it's just shocking. I mean, you see so many cosplayers of Jessica Rabbit at Comic-Cons or things like that. You don't see a lot of Betty Boops, who is now no longer performing at the Ink and Paint Club. She's serving drinks. Poor Betty Boop, still in black and white. She's uh, still in black and white. Yeah. I don't know how you want to cut this. Like, I, this is sort of like our Gremlins episode, where, like, as I watch, I just took so many notes of, like, that line's great. This scene is fantastic. I mean, how, how can we break chemistry down into a drinkable graduated cylinder? I think we should finish off with what you teased, which was the poll that we sent out on Instagram to yeah, our followers of 80s High Podcast. If you're not, you two should be one and you can take fun quizzes and give insights. Darn tootin'. Because you asked the question, when you first saw this movie, were you too old, too young, or was it just right age? Just right. And about 40% of people said, too young. I probably saw this before I should have. But the other 60% were like, no, I was just right. You thought you were maybe too young to watch it? Is that what you said? Just a scotch. I think I saw this a little too early. As a kid who went and saw Maximum Overdrive in the movie theaters when <laughs> oh it came out, I'm God. going to say I was just the right age to just watch this. right. Because clearly young Chris was watching things probably a little ahead of his time. But nothing bothered me about it. You know, sometimes, again, if you can stomach Maximum Overdrive and all of its insanity. So good. Hey, two movies with steamrollers flattening people. Like, I'm jumping ahead, but are there many worse ways to die? Than like being steamrolled starting at your feet. Uh, That's pretty bad. A, I don't think there's a good starting point to be steamrolled, but I take your point. It's a slow moving steamroll. No, here's the thing. With this, your this, feet. This is dark. Like if you start with your head, the game over. You don't have to worry about the rest. But like no, if you get to survive while most of your body gets flattened, that's terrible. No, and, and like I said, it was a slow-moving steamroll. So it's awful. There's definitely dark themes in this. There's definitely a lot of sexualization of even child games. Yeah. <laughs> patty cake has never been more sultry than it has been in sin. this movie. It's the cardinal sin. You can't do it. No patty cake. It's like cheating. <laughs> patty cake. Patty cake. <laughs> but so good. Yeah. I mean, the fact that Jessica is this like ridiculous – I don't even know if you'd call it romanticized, but fictionalized version of this woman with the hourglass waist and the very generous upper part of a body. Very uh, generous upper. We're talking about her shoulders. Very broad shoulders. She had shoulder pads, big shoulder pads. In the rewatch, too, her dress is a lot more pink than I remember. I feel like anytime you see a Jessica oh. Rabbit cosplayer, it's like lipstick red they go with the dress. Not movie accurate. It's pretty pink. Are you suggesting it was more like skin tone to be more 
It's like shimmery um, pink. I don't know. Like it. Okay. I feel like like I it's see... meant to be more like revealing because it's it seems uh, more sheer. Is that what you're thinking, or just like know. you thought it was like boom red? Right. Like I always like when I see someone doing the cosplaying of just crying, it's like fire engine red dress, and like nah, in the movie, it's a little more pink. It's a little yeah. Pink I think part of it too is it does have the sequin shimmer to it, yeah. so it's also you know got the little reflecting bit, which apparently in and of itself was a very challenging effect to pull off to make it look shimmery and you know like the light was bouncing off of it as she's moving and so again another masterful yeah job so good making it all look lived in and real what's wild to me though is kathleen turner the unmistakable yeah, voice right. speaking of romancing the stone yeah again she has that husky i'm not bad i'm just drawn that way you know she's got that like kind of husky voice and she's uncredited in this movie. I don't understand why. I tried to look it up and figure, like, was that her own choice? Was there some weird technical reason? I could not find for the life of me why she was uncredited in the role. Oh, weird. It's one of those things where it's like, I waited for her name to come up in the credits just to confirm. I was like, that is that has to be Kathleen Turner. And it never came up. And it took a little digging. And I found it. But... Again, just said uncredited, which I thought was so bizarre. But it's like she doesn't sing the song, though. It's a different voice. Right. I did catch a different actress. She sings yeah, the yeah. song, Amy Irving. Oh, okay. So she's the one who does the song number that you mentioned in the club. And then everything else is voiced by Kathleen. They don't really sound similar, but it's fine. <laughs> uh, so it's definitely confusing in that regard. And then you had the confusion of perhaps, you know, young kids seeing this and getting thoughts and ideas of like, hey, wait a second. Why am I attracted to this animated character? Right, right. And apparently she was modeled after some of these like 40s knockout siren actresses. Yeah. Veronica Lake, Rita Hayworth, Lauren Bacall. And apparently there is a cartoon character named Red from Red Hot Riding Hood, which I have some oh boy big, big issues with that. Real concern about that. That's that's going to be one of those hard old timey cartoons to watch where you're like, oh dear, oh I, no, I've got a permanent like grit teeth wince. Like, I, what's hold going on, on here? Let me turn on Safe Search before I Google Red Seriously. Hot Riding Hood. In fact, I'm going to argue, do not Google Red Hot Riding Hood, <laughs> <laughs> especially these days. But yeah, it's. Uh, That's part of the movie where I was like, I know they did this intentionally, but this is like such a ridiculous characterization of a woman. Like, I just, I don't know. I kind of wrestled with that of like, I get where they're coming from and I know it was intentional, but also like, this is one of the reasons that there are so many like perpetuated body stereotype issues and... Oh, boy. Anyway. Apparently that line, though, uh, I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way, was voted number 83 out of 100 greatest movie lines of all time by Premier Magazine. It is a very famous line. It's a great line. It's a fantastic line. And apparently it's one of the few things, you know, you touched very briefly on that this is based off of a novel, Who Censored? Yeah. Roger Rabbit. Which, did you look at the plot of this book? No. Very different. Oh. Very different. A rather convoluted story. Not that this one is straightforward, but apparently they weren't movie stars. They were comic strip characters that were oh. that came to life. And they would usually talk in word bubbles. So you could actually see the word bubbles come up. Huh. Anyway, it was a really interesting idea, but very different story. And there's only a few things that kind of carry over. And that's one of the lines that actually carries over. 
Oh, really? Another, I think, big line is the one we mentioned before where it's like the 50-year-old lust with a three-year-old dinky like that. Ridiculous. That line was a little different because I guess he was only in his 30s, but it's the same kind of concept. Like, So that one kind of carried over. And then the I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way. Other than that and a few names, there's not a lot of similarities between the book and the movie. So it really is a, we're going to buy your idea and then completely reconceptualize it for this movie. Ultimately, I think for the better, because I like how it really reflected not only the era of cartoons, but like what was going on with the automobile and how car and tire companies were basically conspiring to create roadways to support their business and get more people on the road, more automobiles on the road. And it was just so interesting. And like the whole idea of like, when the movie starts, Eddie Valiant's like, why do I have to own a car? We have the best public transit in the world. And I was like, LA? No, it doesn't. (laughs) No, no, it does not. Far from it. But this is why. And I didn't realize that. And I was like, oh man, my mind's kind of blown right now. And it's based off of a real thing like it's not exactly the same obviously that no one tore down toontown to build a to build the (laughs) highway but still very fascinating again it was like bringing a real thing like real intrigue and real business dealings and all that kind of things into this like magical world and what better way than we're gonna destroy toontown and turn it into a Eight-lane highway. As far as the eye can see. I can see. Old man Peabody owned all of this. Had a crazy idea of breathing pine trees. Oh, wait. That's a different movie. Oh, my God. (laughs) I, you know, speaking of great lines in this, like, I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. I don't have a lot of these, but there are some lines I just really love in this. When you have the jump scare of Dumbo early on, and he goes, yep. "Oh yeah, he works for Peanuts." I, yeah. I, it's a dad joke, right of home play, but that's the first time you're introduced to a real cartoon character. Yeah, and you're like, "Oh, there's real cartoon characters in this too." That's interesting. I mean, that was another one too. Like ostensibly, it is a Disney movie, though they kind of distanced themselves from it. It was released, I think, by Touchstone Pictures because it was a little roosier and Disney, yeah, right. of course. We're so pristine. But again, like to see Dumbo just show up as a kid again, you're like, wait, this isn't a Disney movie. Dumbo shouldn't be here. What? Yeah. It's <laughs> like, that awesome. was just a really cool thing to see. Another one. <laughs> There's so many one liners I love in this. But uh, as a kid, I always repeated when Valiant beats up the bully in the bar for like teasing him about taking a job with cartoons. You know, he puts his head on the bar, shoves an egg in his mouth and the guy goes, so what's his problem? Like his mouth is full of eggs. So what's his problem? I love that. But then Dolores' response, Toon killed his brother, dropped a piano on his head. But delivers us like everybody takes the Toon world so seriously, which helps sell this movie so well. Like those are so good. It's such an absurd idea that his brother was killed by dropping a piano on his head. But I you're know. right; they they don't play it tongue in cheek. It's played straight. Like no, that's a real way you can die in the real world. It's right. not just. Granted, I think it was in Toontown, but you know the whole idea of like, sure, I guess in real world you could have a piano drop on your head. But it's just so cartoonish. I know. But they sell it. There's just two more that like really brought me back that I love. I love whenever the weasels are laughing. The lead weasel goes, stop that laughing. You know what happens when you can't stop laughing? Which it's foreshadowing. It's how they all get killed in the end. I don't know. I remember as a kid with friends going, stop that laughing. I thought that was a great line. I mean, if you're going to die... 
die in a fit of laughter. Die laughing. Not the worst way to go. Not the worst way. Um, the worst way we've learned is a slow-moving steamroller so, oh, that starts feet at the first. feet. Feet That's terrible. <laughs> the worst. Um, the only one I really love is when Valiant gets to the Ink and Color Club. And he orders a drink and he goes, scotch on the rocks. And I mean ice. And I mean ice. And it took me a long time. Like, as a little kid, I was like, why is he clarifying? But because, like, cartoons are so literal, they're dropping rocks in his glass, which I thought was pretty funny. And I don't think as a kid you knew what on the rocks meant. No, you like, didn't. You probably didn't understand the terminology right. unless you knew it from a show or movie. And so you're like, wait, on the rock? And then, of course, he pulls the rock out and, like, rolls his eyes when he gets it. Yeah. Which, you know, we mentioned Mary Poppins. These are those same penguin waiters. I love that so much. I've probably got three I just want to mention. I don't need to go deep on it, but like three scenes that are like my favorite from the movie. Are there other scenes or lines that like really rung with you? It's hard for me to like choose a scene because I just love all of this movie. Yeah, this movie's so, so much. great. So I don't have any standouts, but I'd love to know what you really connected with. I mean, three stars that stick out for me. The whole shave and a haircut scene in the bar. A tune cannot resist. Shave and a haircut. And you just see Roger, his like, I'm sure his ears are doing something amazing to reflect the oh, fact yeah. that he is literally trembling, trying not to answer, shave and a haircut, until he finally blasts through the wall. Two bits! And the, here's a fun fact about this scene, which I love. So when Doom's coming in, uh, Dolores and Valiant run Roger back into the rot gut room, back from uh, the whiskey running days of Prohibition. It's a holdover from Prohibition era, see? And, and when they're running in, they bump this lamp hanging from the ceiling of the rocket room, and it spins around, casting shadows all over the place. Mm-hmm. And with this whole animation style we've talked about, that was incredibly hard to make that scene with the lamp spinning, casting Roger's shadow around the room, and like everything shaking. And so today at Disney, they have a phrase, bump the lamp, which means, hey, let's put in the extra mile and make this go really well. And like, let's put in some extra work, and really put the sugar on this. Let's bump the lamp on this project. It's like now a phrase from Who Framed How Roger Rabbit. I love How that. about that? The second of three I wanted to bring up that I really love. It's so weird, but I love the little cartoon bullets in the six shooter. Mm. When Valiant's getting ready to go to Toontown, he gets out. And, and, and I caught this on a pause. The lid is inscribed from Yosemite Sam. Like it's a gift for like helping Yosemite Sam from some nice. job. Yeah. But all the bullets have different personalities and they're all excited to go shooting. I thought that was really fun. Man, I got to bring it up. One of them is super racist, but. It's the only thing that does not. Well, there's some things, but that's the main thing that didn't hold up for me. There's a Native American bullet not treated well. Yeah. One, one is a Native American stereotype of a bullet where I was like, gee. But, but besides I, yeah. that, I just love Otherwise, that Otherwise, very fun. And again, it was one of those instances where you see Valiant. Normally, he has like a real gun, but this one, he's like. He's got his tune gun because he's finally ready to go into Toontown. Right. Like, we've seen this movie for over an hour. We've heard about Toontown. We've seen a glimpse of it over the wall. And now we actually get to go there through this tunnel. And you're like, what's going to happen? But at first he needs his tune gun with Which, his bullets. <laughs> when I visited uh, LA, I really wanted to go through that tunnel because that tunnel is both in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But it's the same tunnel where Marty McFly steals the almanac out of the backseat of Biff's car. So it's a Back great future too, right? Yeah, exactly. So a bit of that tunnel. Is that a regular tunnel? Like it's not, or is it on yeah, a lot? It's just like in a park. Like it's in a park you drive through. I forget the name of the park. Oh, okay. LA, LA listeners, please correct us on which park that is. I can't remember the name of it. Interesting. Okay. The last little scene is kind of at the end of the shave and the haircut thing. And I love the reverse psychology drinking. 
because we know Roger Rabbit loses his gourd when he drinks. Yes. And they're trying to escape doom. And Eddie and Roger have the, you know, take the drink. I don't want the drink. Come on. I don't want the drink. You do want the drink. I do want the drink. Like that whole yeah. thing was so, I love that. I love that back that and good. forth. Very funny. Oh, something caught me because you were on my mind because we do this show together. But okay. right in the initial cartoon, when they pan out, they're panning out on the set after the uh, something cooking shot is over. And you remember how there's like their baby Herman's mom's legs are in it, kind of like how the Muppet babies used to have the mom's legs in the cartoons. I think I know what you're talking about, yeah. So they zoom out, and the legs are just a robot. So it's just legs down and robot up on a pole. And I was like, oh, Herbie Hancock, rocket. Great. Legs on a pole. Good catch. Good catch. But I thought you there. I did mention in the intro to coming to this class, so Doom rolls in, opens the back of his bus, big oil drum inside, lifts it up. It's dip. Yeah. And then he he puts the most adorable, innocent, squeaky cartoon shoe <sighs> slowly like tell me about your experience with that scene well it's gut wrenching because it's just a shoe it doesn't talk and it just makes this little like squeaky noise and to prove that when tunes are out of line they suffer consequences doom picks this little shoe up pops open this industrial barrel that you would see in like breaking bad cracks that bad boy open you see this like toxic green Ugh. it's the only thing that'll erase or kill a cartoon and he's gonna dip this poor shoe and it's like squeaking and it's freaking out and it's trying not to get dropped in and it just slowly submerges <sighs> for a shoe with no it's voice. heartbreaking it's like the sweetest little innocent thing and i think that's the whole point it's like it's just this this sweet thing that didn't do anything wrong and he just utterly destroys it monster he's a monster now i i was curious and we are an educational show so i wanted to go look this up they do briefly mention the three ingredients of dip and those are they do. turpentine which is oil distilled from gum turpentine or pine wood used in mixing paints and varnishes so there's a little paint nod there i guess goes with the ink of cartoons but i think it really comes down to the acetone this is a solvent that's used to dissolve other materials like paint varnish or grease so this one like yep. makes the most sense and the last one is benzene, which is pretty benzene. pretty awful. It, it's used in gasoline. It might cause cancer. It has pretty significant carcinogenic properties. I thought it was like an industrial solvent or cleaner or something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's used primarily in like chemical synthesis. So it makes other things happen. It makes other things mix and come together. But it's a gnarly chemical. Like coal yeah. tar, petroleum. Uh, so it's a, bad, it's a bad little soup. Bad little tuned soup there. There you go. So- one thing that I thought was really interesting, you know, we talked about like Warner Brothers and Disney characters coming together. Apparently, there was a lot of negotiating. Yeah, right, right. They had to have equal screen time. Right. Behind the scenes, they made this happen, but like both of these big studios were like, our characters will not take second billing to your characters. So you see Donald and Daffy the same amount of time. Not only that, apparently they had to have equivalent musical abilities to each other. Oh, really? One couldn't be really good and the other one was terrible. When you see Mickey and Bugs skydiving again on the screen the exact yeah. same amount of time. And even at the end, uh, when Porky Pig and Tinkerbell come on, same kind of a thing. Equal screen time. I just goal. found that so interesting that you just imagine all these suits behind the scenes like... Well, okay, I gave you three more seconds. Sure, he can be better at hitting this note, but I need to make sure that Bugs, my boy, stands up to the test. 
Bugs, my boy. And I, I guess I get it, but it seems also ridiculously silly. Yeah. You know, I guess if you are the lawyer or the contract dealer who's working for your company, you're going to want the best for your client and your characters and your intellectual property. Sure, I get it. But it just seems like another example of how we were able to take such boring minutia, but bring it to the screen in the best way possible and make that minutia invisible. It's there. The suits can go home and... You know, hey, honey, I did a job well done tonight, see? Like, they can have that kind of feeling. But, like, as a kid, again, you were just excited to see all these characters together sure. in one movie. Especially at the end where it's like, oh, my God. So many characters. And apparently they wanted to get tons more and just didn't get the rights in time. They wanted, like, all the Popeye characters. <laughs> yeah. They wanted, uh, what, Casper the Friendly Ghost. There was, like, tons of other characters they wanted to add in. But weren't able to. In fact, they were going to have this whole, for R.K. Maroon, they were going to have this whole funeral scene that added a bunch of those characters into it. But they had to cut it for time. There's a lot they had to cut for time, uh, including, did you hear or read what um, Christopher Lloyd was supposed to have as like a pet on his shoulder? What He was supposed to have a pet? Is this like a Jafar and Iago sort of thing? Yes, exactly. He was supposed to have an animated vulture on his shoulder. I love it. It's I would have totally been on board for that. That's great. And, and they had to cut it for, I think, time and money, which I get where they were coming from, but I kind of feel like the idea of like a vulture, it seems very arch. Like, sure. Azrael, I'm going to get the Smurfs once and for all. <laughs> you know, it's like, it feels like a little too much. Like he had the weasel gang. The weasels were enough. That's fair. It was a good cut, I think. I think it was one of those... Great examples of not getting what you want all the way creates a better product in the end. I I don't think we would have gained anything from having a little vulture perched there and raising its eyes in a very uh, sinister way or whatever. Sure. And the weasels were great. They didn't get everything they wanted, but what they got was so great. Oh, yeah. I have one behind the scenes thing and one in the scenes thing. My behind the scenes thing, I love Bob Hoskins tells this most charming story that for two weeks after seeing the movie, his son wouldn't talk to him after seeing him in the film. And when Bob actually finally asked, why aren't you talking to me? He said he couldn't believe that his dad would work with cartoon characters like Bugs Bunny and not introduce him. That's adorable. Great example. That's That's adorable. That's the example right there. Kids actually bought the concept as a real thing. so cute. Dad, I can't believe you didn't introduce me to Bugs Bunny. How could you? The other one, not behind the scenes, in the scenes, this is sort of like Rocky Horror Picture Show and Easter eggs. Are you familiar with the concept on Disney uh, of hidden Mickeys? Um, I didn't know it was a thing, but I know what you're talking about. So for the uninitiated, a hidden Mickey is the three-circled silhouette of Mickey the Mouse's head. And Disney does a thing, sort of like how uh, Pixar likes to hide the Pizza Planet truck in all of its movies. There are hidden Mickeys in almost every Disney thing ever produced. Somewhere in the background, there is that profile. And even in Disney World and Disneyland, the physical parks, when you go to a ride, somewhere on the ride is going to be a hidden Mickey. They're very subtle. And there are two hidden Mickeys in this movie, both in roughly the same scene. It's in the the final climax where Eddie Valen has shown up and fighting the whole team and in the warehouse. And there's a little hole being dug through the wall by the weasels into Toontown. And yeah. the, the outline of the hole in the wall is the shape of Mickey's head where the light from Toontown's coming through. All right. And then the other one, Eddie Valiant taps into his circus performer background and does a song and dance to distract Judge Doom. Actually, to, to he does it to murder the weasels. 
Because he's knocking them dead. They're laughing. Knock them dead. Pop went the weasels. Yep. But he he picks up three Acme-labeled bombs to juggle them. And when he first holds them, they make the silhouette of Mickey's head. They're in that little formation. Those are the hidden Mickeys. There you go. There's one last tiny bit of fun fact that we've I've left out of chemistry. And you brought it up first, so maybe I'll let you have it if you want to close it out for us. The title of the movie is Who Framed Roger Rabbit? No punctuation. But that is a question. Why isn't there a question mark in the name of the movie? So you might have a rich, elaborate backstory. All I know is apparently it's bad luck in Hollywood to have a question mark in a movie title. Is that correct? It's like it's basically bad luck. Don't do it. This sent me angry Googling because I've got exactly what you have where it's bad luck. And I searched, why is a question mark in the title of a movie bad luck? Could not find any reason Hmm. of like, oh, these seven movies in a row from a production studio that all had question marks all flopped. Like I couldn't find any Or like John Travolta was in all those movies and his box office poison, so we can't do it. The the original name of the movie was (laughs) Battlefield Earth? Question mark? Oh, Uh, yeah. But uh, anyway, I don't know. But that's why there's no punctuation in the name of the movie. Well, listen, we have industrious listeners who let us know that Duck Hunt was indeed a standalone cartridge. Maybe we have another listener who can get back to us and say, look, guys, here's a real scoop. I, I used to work in Hollywood. I'm in the biz. I know a thing or two, see? Yeah, please let us know. As we kick this barrel of dip and it spreads across the floor. Oh, dear. As our mic drop in chemistry. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on? I mean, short of us just going scene by scene and both geeking out over everything that was amazing. The best thing you can do for yourself is just go rewatch it or watch it if you haven't already. Because I really do feel like every second of this movie is just a joy to watch. And so it's hard for me to kind of break down any one thing that I love so much. It's just a lot of fun. It's so joyful. Well, with that being said, again, the movie opens with a lovely refrigerator opening wide with Tweety Birds, Tweety Birds. They're supposed to be stars, Roger, stars. I can do stars. See, I can do stars. Let's go g- grab a, uh, a cartoon ham hock out of that fridge and have some lunch. And we'll catch our listeners on the other side in contemporary culture. I think they're serving French dip, so I'm going to have some of that. <laughs> and I hope it's not benzene. <laughs> Everybody skip it dipping, scooping it or finger licking, spreading it on or maybe celery sticking. Everybody skip it dipping. People dipping for the skip because it's naughtier. People dipping for the skip because it's peanut buttier. Big people, little people, everyone, because it's good, 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 good fun. Whoa, everybody skip it dipping. Look out. Everybody skip it dipping till it's all. At the top here of Contempo, I just want to talk about merchandising real fast, how they spun off Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Okay. So right right out of the gate, Disney developed Mickey's Toontown for Disneyland 1991 based on the Toontown in the movie. And last time I was to Disney World, I think Toontown was still there. And I had to ride Hmm. uh, Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin. So you've got Benny and and it's kind of like a car chase. Um, they did three more animated shorts with Roger Rabbit. Uh, one came up before Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which I thought was pretty good. One before the Dick Tracy movie. Really? Right? Uh, Tummy Trouble was shown before Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I don't remember those, and I've seen both of those movies. Now it's I kind of want to go back, right? Well, and I also wonder, like, if you catch it on, like, DVD or or even streaming, like, 
do those pop up or are they not considered part of the movie proper? So I have, to surprise no one, I have a two-disc Blu-ray of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Is it an extra feature? And it's an extra feature. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. I'm almost certain I saw Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in Dick Tracy in the movie theater, but goodness, that's been obviously 30 plus years ago, so. So obviously there were comic books and there were video games, uh, including two PC games, an NES game that came out in 89, a Game Boy game. We've covered, we've also talked about Game Boy on this show. Did you revisit either of these games, Ben? Uh, Unfortunately, my avenue for revisiting Elder Games uh, is currently malfunctioning. Oh boy. So I have not gotten to play uh, i'm gonna work on it though i'm gonna work on all it. all right all right we, we need to find out if this is like a lost treasure of the I nes know. i'm gonna guess it's not everybody probably not i'm gonna guess it's terrible probably but not. you never know if it's anything like that freaking aladdin game run for the hills <laughs> <laughs> oh boy uh there's a few here though so like that was the last time they ever did it right that was the last time we ever had humans and cartoons sharing the big screen yeah, they were like, this movie's so good, we're going to have to retire this concept because nobody could top that. So we're done. Bye. Bye. All right, contemporary culture's over. No, right out of the gate is such a blatant ripoff. And I'm so curious if you've ever seen this. So 1992, starring Brad Pitt and Kim Basinger, yeah. Cool World. Have you ever seen Cool World? I haven't. I remember the movie concept. I can kind of picture the poster, I think is the best way to put it. I don't actually know the plot. I just remember seeing Brad Pitt, and I think it's like a female character. Is she like in a white dress or something? You got it. She's in white. Okay. That's about the extent of my knowledge, and I don't remember seeing this movie because I don't remember anyone liking this movie. It's terrible. I watched it maybe like a year ago. It's on Amazon Prime, and I was like, oh, I wonder how this holds up. It's such a blatant ripoff of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like it's a a human detective trying to help cartoons in the cartoon world. Kim Basinger is a femme fatale, and they try and like adult it up a little more. But, like, they don't have license from any of these studios. So there's no Looney Tunes or Disney. Honestly, I I generally really like Brad Pitt. It's the worst Brad Pitt performance I can remember. Like, it's just so bad. It's a bad movie. Okay. Now, if I'm caught saying this about the next movie, there will be trouble in my household. Oh, boy. Because somebody of the two of us worships this next movie. Oh. And that would be 1996's... Space Jam, starring Michael Jordan. Space Jam with Michael Jordan. Yes, of course. This movie was actually huge when it came out. Like, I remember yeah. the, the, the all the buzz around Space Jam. It was a big deal. I've never seen it. Oh. Familiar with the concept. These are Warner Brothers characters, yes? Yes. If you okay. were a kid when this came out, it was a big deal. It was really fun. It was hilarious. If you like sport ball... Yeah, and like the sport ball aspect is pretty light in it for those who aren't big sport ballers. Sure. That's probably why I didn't see it as yeah. I wasn't big into sport ball. But uh, yeah, I remember it being a big deal for sure. Yeah. So apparently Warner Brothers wanted to have Disney characters in this movie. Oh. Kind of as like repaying the favor for oh. them adding their characters to Who Framed Roger Rabbit in Disney flat out rejected them no thank you and warner brothers is kind of like hey we had sort of a gentleman's agreement here and you're not like fulfilling your end of this oh you know this loose agreement of like hey we did this favor to you and you know you can't do it back and it's very disney i think i think disney 
it's not surprising. It's kind of like, really, guys? Come on already. But I just feel like Disney has that like old school culture of we're doing it this way and we make zero compromises. Yeah. And we're not here for the spirit of collaboration. They just, they have a little bit of that. And, and I think it still carries over to this day. We're going to talk a little bit about it, I think, here in just a bit. Oh, yeah, right. Of course. The last one I want to mention, there's plenty of these movies, but last year was Chippendale Rescue Rangers, which I was really excited about because I loved that cartoon. It also has one of my favorite theme songs of the era. Yeah. I think it's right up there with Darkwing Duck and DuckTales. Oh, careful, buddy. Careful. It's some of the best. Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. It's good. It's not up there with <gasps> Darkwing Easily. Duck. Easily. Easily. Hardly. It's not even like a difficult climb. Throw up an Instapole. We need to figure this out. <laughs> We'll take it to the fans. They'll set the record straight. But not only was the movie kind of fun, but also Roger Rabbit makes a cameo in it. So it was kind of a nice oh, little nice. throwback. He's kind of there. Cool. Now, you mentioned mm, Disney not being nice, not being great. Are you wanting to talk about the author's lawsuit? Is that what you were tipping your hat to? Well, there's that too, actually. So there's there's two other things. There's the lawsuit, and then there's the supposed next entry into the the franchise of Roger Rabbit. And I think Disney doesn't come off well in either of those. But let's start with the lawsuit since you mentioned that. Okay. I mean, in 2001, Gary Wolf, the author of the novel that inspired the movie, uh, files a lawsuit against Disney uh, saying that he was, he was owed royalties based on the value of the, quote, gross receipts and yeah. the merchandising sales. Merchandising, man. Merchandising. And how did, I mean, Wolf got everything he wanted. He's on a yacht right now on his Caribbean island, right? It all worked out okay? Yeah, Disney was like, listen, we totally hear you. You gave us something amazing. We made hay on this project. And so it's only fitting that we're going to reward you for all of your effort. No, that's not true at all. So Wolf estimated apparently that he was owed $7 million. Yeah. This was as uh, as of March 2005 at the hearing. Disney, of course, disputed the claim. Not only disputes it. Yeah. They said that Wolf actually owed them probably like, I don't know, half a million, one million it's dollars. Insane. It's because insane. of an accounting error that we let slip. Thank sure. you very much. But if you want to get technical about uh-huh. it, old Uncle Walt needs a little bit of cash back, as a matter of fact. So Wolf won the decision later that year, 2005. And he received roughly $180,000 to $400,000 in damages, well shy of what he thinks he was owed of $7 million. Well, sure. And after four years of legal cases and lawsuits, the damages has probably like covered the cost of his lawyers for this probably. whole thing. Honestly, yeah. I don't think he probably made anything off of it. And uh, honestly, that's not a damage to a company like Walt Disney. No. Are you kidding me? 400K is nothing to them. Peanuts, says Dumbo, would work for. <laughs> Just uh, like rid- Dumbo's peanuts. Ridiculous. So once again, litigious old Disney not coming off with their best face or foot forward. But, you know, that never stops them. That's <sighs> such a bummer. So ever since 89, the year after this came out, Spielberg has been talking about a sequel. And Zemeckis. And well, that's where I'm getting. So he's talked about it, you know, J.J. Abrams potentially as a writer, Zemeckis as a producer, but we still have not seen the Who Framed Roger Rabbit sequel. Uh, do you want to talk a little about this? You you did give us a nod to it. Yeah, I mean, it was initially going to be a prequel. Right. So they were going to have Roger Rabbit, the Toon Platoon, conceived of as early as 89, which is a year after the movie came out. 
And this would have been set in the early 40s, and it would kind of follow like Roger Rabbit's early years. He's apparently trying to find out who his mother is. Yeah. And he ends up meeting Jessica Krupnik, his future wife. She's a struggling actress. And then he gets enlisted in the army. She's kidnapped and forced to make pro-Nazi German broadcasts. Right. This story is insane. And then they have to go to Nazi-occupied Europe uh, with other tunes to try to, I guess, save her. Right. Oh, boy. And apparently he ends up reuniting with his mother. And I saw this. And his father, Bugs Bunny. So Bugs Bunny is his Canonically dad? is Roger Rabbit's father, Bugs Bunny. This seems like an odd script. It doesn't come to be. Largely, Spielberg backs out. And a huge reason is because he makes Schindler's List. Yeah. And he's like, yo, I just made the worst experience come to life. In a movie, I cannot satirize yeah, Nazis. This would look real bad on me right now. Bad timing, guys. I don't I think it's do even. This. it would look bad. I don't think in good conscience he could even do it. You've got to leave that up to Mel Brooks around this time. Only Mel Brooks can satirize Nazis. I think Mel can still do it you know, with a clear conscience, but I totally understand how Spielberg's like, I, I just can't do it. You can't do it, guys. Because, uh, I mean, he made one of the hardest movies to make ever. So he backs out. Apparently, there's a rewrite in 1997. Yeah. Who Discovered Roger Rabbit is this title. It keeps the whole Roger searching for his mother, but the World War II subplot is replaced with Roger's inadvertent rise to stardom on Broadway and Hollywood. Oh my goodness. And I guess that's kind of what's the end of the prequel idea. And somewhere in the 2000s, about 2007 to 2010, there's still an interest by a lot of the parties to do this. Zemeckis is interested. Apparently, they even get Bob Hoskins to sign on. Yeah. This is, of course, going to be a sequel. It would include motion capture elements, which apparently Hoskins was kind of like, eh, I don't yeah. know about that. Sadly, Bob dies in 2012. Yeah. But this is wild. In 2016, Zemeckis is like, hey... We still have this idea. We're going to move Roger and Jessica to the next period of films in the 50s. We're going to have a... All right, hear me out, everybody. A digital Bob Hoskins as Eddie Valiant returning in ghost form. So, like, just the hard pause. Like, hard break on this. We've seen this in recent history happening, right? We brought back Carrie Fisher in the Star Wars movies. I mean, like a decade ago, I remember seeing the the hologram Tupac performing on stage long after Tupac's death. Ghostbusters Afterlife is really the vibe I'm getting here. Afterlife, for sure. Like, how do you feel about using actors' faces, likenesses, persona after their death without their agreement? Well, I mean, their estate family has to agree. Sure. They can't just be like, well, they're dead. We can do their likeness, whatever we want. Sure. So there, there's... Of course, permissions. You know, we don't know. Maybe they had made some agreement with him. I don't know. I didn't particularly like this idea, at least as it's pitched. Zemeckis says the script is terrific. Yeah. And the film would still use hand-drawn animation, even though apparently there might be some motion capture. I don't quite know. But he says, you know what? Disney's green lighting of this sequel is basically slim to none. And he's maintained that as uh, the latest I saw is 2018, where he said Disney's unlikely to ever produce it, even as something on the streaming service, Disney+. Plus. Yeah. He said not only are they not really big on Roger, they're definitely not big on Jessica. Yeah, I don't see – I see that. Yeah, and he says that 
he feels it does not make any sense as there is no princess in it, which is a little bit of a jab oh, at Disney. Oh, yeah, a little jab there, yeah. Listen, I never mind people throwing shade at Disney. I don't like their style. Not a big fan. I think they're a little too litigious and a little too jerk store about their intellectual properties and how fans can kind of use them in creative and fun ways. So, yeah, I don't think this makes them come off looking super great either. I do want to throw out there, I saw a great meme recently, though. For listeners of 80s High who love 80s pop culture, now that Disney owns Fox, that does mean from Married with Children that Peg Bundy is a Disney princess, uh, which, which is a nice evolution. How is she a princess? Because she's amazing. She would be a queen, my friend. <laughs> Katie Seagal is a queen. Christina Applegate is a princess. Oh, she Thank would be the princess. Much. But the queens are always like so evil in Disney. And she's not like evil. There's good queens. She's like a yes queen, good queen. Okay. <laughs> she's a she's yes a- <laughs> queen, good queen. <laughs> it's a fair point. It's like the alien. It's another Fox property. The queen alien is a queen, obviously. Okay. I love it. Who knew we'd take a Peg Bundy turn here? That's all I have for contemporary culture. Do you have anything else you want to talk about of like what came after Roger Rabbit that was tied to it? I think we hit the highlights, you know, again, there's not a lot, like surprisingly, even like merchandising, there's not like a lot of toys. I mean, you mentioned some books and comics and games and stuff, but there's not a ton of merchandising, which is a little bit surprising. It is surprising. But I guess challenging in that you do have these intellectual properties that are very separate from each other, very contentious, apparently. So what would you have? I guess Benny the Cab and Jessica and sure. I don't know if that's a problematic toy or not. Totally then problematic got, toy. <laughs> and then you got Roger. So maybe it doesn't make sense, but I don't know. It's a little surprising that it wasn't like in a McDonald's kids meal or something. I don't know. Sure. A little Benny the Cab. The kind that you would back up and then it would like roll forward like 100%. two feet. That would be right? great. A little Nerf Something gun like with the little animated bullets in it that you could shoot around, the little different personality bullets. That would be amazing. That's but a anyway, great point. No, I think we, we covered what there was to, uh, to cover for contemporary culture. I think we nabbed it all. Well, in that case, it's time for us to head to math class, the final act, where I think we have to close on a musical number, because I think that's just what happens. I thought that was just Shrek and Smash Mouth, but that, of course, mm. happens in this movie as well. So It sure does. Think about what song you want to do as a duet as we get to math class, and okay. we'll, uh, we'll sing the calculations when we get there. All right, we're here in math class to find out, on a revisit to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, how does it hold up today? Chris, why don't you kick us off and uh, let us know how you think about this movie in 2023? It's a zero, everybody. As you could tell, couldn't stand this thing. Ridiculous. What a junkie. Lies back and forth. I wanted to melt this movie right alongside Doom. Judge Doom. Burn it to the ground. <laughs> just stick it in dip. No, my goodness. Honestly, as you couldn't tell, I cannot heap enough praise onto this movie. Ugh, it really was the meeting of so much talent on every single front. We talked about the animators, the actors, the voice actors, the practical effects team, the editors, all the way to those key power players, Zemeckis, Spielberg, and others who had the cachet and influence to make it all work in the best ways possible. I think you can really tell this movie, it's a labor of love and sweat equity that all (laughs) came together to make it work. It wasn't easy to pull off, of course. A lot of people were like, it's an amazing experience, and it was so grueling and exhausting, and I'd never do it again, but I love that I did it. 
And that really just goes back to like, it was hard to make, but the greatest accomplishments are never easy, right? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I really think Bob Hoskins gets the lion's share of the credit for being the nexus that sells this concept in its entirety. Really, without him, I don't think you have a successful movie. You know, everything works so well, including Bob, because it doesn't draw attention to itself. We talked about that. Like, all of the the good work is so well hidden, yeah. masterfully so, that all you're witnessing on the screen is the artistry in its full glory. All the clockwork behind it magically dissolves. It's a movie that I think can be appreciated on so many levels. It rewards repeat viewings because there's so many tiny things that you can catch that's pure genius. You mentioned the ears. I'm like, yeah. you know, I read about that after I rewatched the movie. I'm like, I could go back and just watch to see how his ears yeah. change and move and everything. And I'd see that. And then the next time I, I watch the movie, maybe I catch this little tidbit. Like you said, you saw the inscription on the inside of the gun box that it's from Yosemite Sam. Like little, little details like that. Just so cool. Now, look, we did mention some dated references that do cause wincing. Mostly, the Native American representation of one of the bullets does not hold up. No, that was bad. cringy. Very bad. Also, you know, I, I don't want to belabor this too much, but I think it's worth mentioning, especially in light of recent events, you know, Jessica Rabbit's portrayal as this unattainable standard for women. I know the character is meant to be exaggerated, but it still does reflect a male creator's view of women or many male creators' views of women. Yeah. Uh, even if it's referential to previous views, it's still perpetuating that. And, and I think it's uh, something that just sits a little off balance for me in light of recent legislation and court rulings yeah. maybe you heard about, <laughs> you know, kind of deciding who has control of women's bodies. And, you know, P.S., it's not dudes. So, you know, a little <laughs> bit of that, I'm like, yeah, we just got to call it out. I'm not going to fault it, but I also don't think we should just like, oh, it was just the time. Let's move it. along. Yeah. You know, I, I think those portrayals still are having an impact on how we view women. And so there's that. Uh, but again, I can't say enough good about this movie. The true credit I do want to give to the army of animators, effect yeah. artists, editors who work tirelessly, and I'm going to say thanklessly, to their technical wits ends to create the work of art we get to enjoy. So do yourself a favor and please, Daddy, revisit Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's pretty good. Uh, so you don't have to hear my terrible impersonation. Because when you watch it, everyone, you'll smile. Darn ya smile. <laughs> smile. Darn ya smile. Smile. Uh, this whole world is a great world after all. See? It ends in it's a song. Catchy. It's so good. I knew there'd be a song here in math class. Uh, and I'm, we all appreciate that you did give the Roger Rabbit impression a shot. You know, Ben really wanted me to. Really tied the episode my goodness. together. It was so good. It's just, I, I got nothing in this one. Per usual, that happens more often than I think we give it credit for. I could happily just copy and paste everything you just said, and that would be my takeaway. But this is school, and you would get a failing grade. I would. That's right. Maybe I could just, okay, hold on. Let's see here. www.chatbotgbt.com. <laughs> Uh, what is the analysis of Roger Rabbit today? So I guess there's three places I want to go. And one is just, you know, as a kid, I loved this movie because it was funny. It's a funny movie. It's really well acted. It's a great story. Yeah. But to revisit it now as an adult, I have such a greater appreciation for it. I think the first of three things is 
just Zemeckis. Now knowing that Zemeckis was at the helm, I didn't know that as a kid. And he yeah. just has a, a flair for pacing of an adventure that you, if hmm. you were to watch this back to back with Back to the Future, it would make so much sense that he just has a great yeah. rhythm and character relationship development. He's really great at that. And like, it feels like a Zemeckis film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Second, like you said, Bob Hoskins, as hairy as a human monkey as he is, is a phenomenal <laughs> actor. You know, that, that scene where he's like in his underwear with uh, with Jessica Rabbit and Dolores is like, uh, dabbling in watercolors, huh, Eddie? Uh, like, he's so hairy just in his body. He's got hairy shoulders. Like, oh it's my just, yeah. God, you could braid yeah, his the shoulders. The man's wearing a sweater. It's oh, goodness. nuts. But he kills it. Like, all of his miming that he does, his ability to do sight lines, to act when nobody is there, to take it his role so hmm. seriously, and to hide his British accent. Come on, that's not the hardest thing, but it's still impressive. Like, <laughs> he's great. Hoskins really makes this film. And although they, yeah. they considered such great actors for the role, I don't think anyone else could have pulled it off. Like, he did. It's so good. The last part, and this isn't a surprise, I already said this, it's just like the en- the engineering chops that went into this movie impressed me so much. I mean, the animation, yeah. it's very clear we should all be impressed by that, that you had to hand draw every cell, every shot four times. Insane. Mm. But just, I love the creativity where some writer is like, hey, Yosemite Sam is going to fly over the wall and we need him to put the fire on his butt out in a puddle in the parking lot. Can you make a puddle steam and spray? And they're like, we're on it. And then they just MacGyver some crazy thing with some bubble gum and a paperclip, and it works. Mm. Just throughout the whole movie, watching watching the movie through that lens of like, how did they do this shot? Like trying to figure out how they pulled off this little mechanic is so impressive. It's kind of like watching magic where you're like, okay, hold on. I know you just did something amazing. How did you do yeah, it? Yeah, I freaking love that. And mm. I think at the end of this movie where, where it really all comes down to me is like – when when I look around today, we're we're so surrounded by just everything is cheap and easy. Everything breaks down in a couple of years, cheap plastic or single-use plastics. Everything is fast food. Reality, you've heard me lambast reality television on this podcast before. It's so cheap and easy to produce. No one's thinking hard making reality television. Uh, automated customer assistance phone lines. You can't even call up a real person to get help. Like it's all what's the cheapest and easiest way to do all this stuff. But when you look at Who Framed Roger Rabbit, like the time and the heart that went into this production from everyone, the animators, the actors, the engineers, the musicians, like you just don't find a lot of works today that kind of have that singular focus of dedication to make something so amazing and really do it right down to the tiniest minutia of detail. It's just such an impressive work of art and storytelling. And I think it makes Who Framed Roger Rabbit one of the most unique and coolest films to come out of the decade and makes it stand up so well today. Amen, my friend. Bam. Amen. Uh, and with that, I think I'm going to go live in Toontown because that looks crazy and fun. And I'm, I'm just catch me. <laughs> you there. might fit right in. I might fit right in. Here's a question. How long do you think I would stay there? Oh, I think you'd like the tunnel would start to reveal as you're driving out and you just back the car up the rest of the way <laughs> out the I don't tunnel. Even, like, I don't get one tire in. I'm like, uh, I've had enough. It's like the uh, the knights in uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail when they're talking about Camelot. And they're like, it's a silly place. Let's not go there. Like, <laughs> that strikes me as you for that. I think you're right. I think you're right. I, I would not last very long. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. I was so excited to talk about this movie. I love this movie mm. dearly. And I loved learning about it. It's a magnificent work of art, and I like to I like talking about it with you. 
Obviously, I loved it too. I'm so glad you picked it. It's one of those that I think we've mentioned offhandedly several times, and I'm like, we need to do this yeah. sooner rather than later. So I'm so thrilled you picked it. It was a great revisit. And yeah, great getting to learn all of the behind the scenes that made it happen. So thank you so freaking much. Well, what a great episode. Now we are in an auditory tunnel to Toontown where we are riding along with grand anticipation on what will be revealed of this glowing light around the corner on the next episode of 80s High. Okay, I'm just going to come right out with it, Ben. We're talking music next episode. Ooh, neat. Okay. Ooh. All right. It's been a while. I like it. Now, we've covered some great music and musicians on the show before, right? We've talked about, well, we mentioned Peter Gabriel. Love it. We've talked about Michael Jackson. Have we ever mentioned Pat Benatar? Pat Benatar. Like once, maybe? Maybe she came up one time. I don't know. Okay, I kind of forgot. Uh, Paul Simon. Yeah. Even talked about Weird Al. Sure. And the mixtape craze of the decade. Yeah. And Herbie Hancock. And Herbie. Oh, my gosh. We got Herbie. Yes, of course. For sure. Of course. Oh, so many. But there's a spot we've kind of missed. Oh. And there's also a theme we haven't visited in quite a while since Paul Simon, which is talking about a music album. Oh, album. So we're talking yeah. about a music album, okay? Ooh. But there's a type of music we haven't really covered from the 80s that is almost, I won't say synonymous, but definitely identified with it. Ooh, we've never talked about synthesizers. Is that what we're doing? <laughs> that is a bold-faced lie, sir. <laughs> uh, we haven't talked about hair metal. What? No. Glam rock pop metal. We have not percent. talked about these genres yet. Oh, my God. So I aim to change that for our next episode. Oh my God. Because if a movie is taking an audiovisual journey of a story, then the music album, of course, is the start to finish tale from headbangers to power ballads of tasty lyrics and pleading guitars. Oh my God. What is this? So for the next episode, we're going to let it rock, let it roll with absolute iconic tracks such as Wanted. Dead or alive. Stop it, no. Living on a prayer. Oh my God. And you give love a bad name. name. Oh my God. With these tracks, Bon Jovi rocketed overnight from a supporting act to worldwide headliner in music chart toppers with the album that turned heavy metal into radio-friendly pop format and is arguably seen as a breakthrough for hair metal genre. I'm of course speaking... Of the 1984 album, Slippery When Wet. Oh my god. <laughs> what a pick. Bon Jovi. Dude, this is gonna rock. This is gonna be awesome. I was like, we haven't done like a rock album, like a freaking rock. And of course, there's so many like more quintessential big hair bands, right? There's Motley Crue. There's sure. I didn't know where you were going. Yeah, I mean, there's. I mean, Motley Crue is probably the the biggest white name. Snake, but there's great white, white Journey. snake. Yeah, um, absolutely. Kiss. Guns and Roses. Yeah, absolutely. When I started looking at oh, what are some of the big most influential '80s albums? And I was looking through like the track list, and I was like, oh man, there's some like classic tunes in this one. So that's the direction I went. And uh, we're going to listen to this album start to finish and see what that experience is like 2023. What an awesome pick. I'm stoked to rock out with you. This is a great pick. I'm very excited. We're nearing the end of season three of 80s High. So we're more than halfway there. Uh, living nice. on a prayer. Nice. But 
I'll, I'll end all of the terrible references and just say I'm excited to listen, talk about, check out this album by Bon Jovi on the next episode, Ben, of 80s High. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the rumor. Stay radical. Stay radical.